I hope you're ready because there's a lot of good things that are going to happen today. And we're going to see God working in many lives today. And <clears throat> if, you, if, you, if we pay attention to this, we'll see just how much he does bless us. I would tell you all those things that are going to happen, but it's true. My memory's not what it used to be. And uh, listen, I take no offense. I want you all to know that our youth minister, Timmy, here is doing a great job. And I'm really excited about tonight and what Timmy has in store for us, youth minister. And the, um, and the, oh, the tamales, you should have heard it. I mean, that should be the other part of the phrase. And we're having tamales and God is good. And, you know, that's good. It's going to, let me tell you another reason why I think it would be great for you to be there. It's a, it's an opportunity for hospitality. This, we, we set the format up like that because every congregation that hosts this, has an opportunity to show hospitality to one another. And God has blessed us to be a resource in this region for churches, um, for, for our brothers and sisters everywhere. And I think that's a blessed thing, and it's a good opportunity to encourage one another. Pray with me, and let's, uh, let's take a look at what God's Word says after this prayer. Father, we ask that you would bless us. We pray that you would <clears throat> give us overflowing hope. So that we know that in all things, you, your name, you're going to win the victory. You are going to accomplish all of your purposes, no matter what we may see going on around us. And Father, I pray that you would give us that hope so that we will be encouraged and strengthened as we stay faithful to what you are doing in our lives and in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was in 1973 that a psychiatrist, Dr. Carl Menninger, uh, who sounds like he should be from Germany, but he's actually from Topeka, Kansas. Carl Menninger wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin. And Menninger was saying that we have lost the idea of wrongdoing that we no longer see our problem as doing the wrong thing, and we fail to identify that in others. And he says that that becomes a bit of a problem. But 42 years later, I wonder if the same thing might be said about hope, that someone could and should write a book, Whatever Became of Hope. Because our concept of hope seems to be just as ineffective or absent It's misplaced, it's thin. We hope in things, we hope in events, but we don't really experience the sort of hope that would change the world. We may hope that things go well tomorrow, we may hope that our sports team wins, we may hope that our candidates win the election, we may hope that things would change in this country, and yet even if they do sometimes, even if we do get our hopes, it never seems to hold I think that's because our hope is rather thin, it's misplaced, it's not the kind of thriving hope that can not only change our behavior, but it could change our culture, and even the culture within the church. Real hope, the kind of hope that we see described in Scripture, is transforming If you have that sort of hope, you're going to see things differently. We are going to see one another differently 
if we have that sort of hope. I want to give you just a, a sample of that. Oh, and the, the scriptural witness to this is so great. But Romans 8, Paul has already triggered that, that, that moment between chapter 7 and chapter 8 where he says, wait a second, all of the things that I thought couldn't be in Jesus Christ, oh, now, he says, now there's much, much that we have to hope in, and even though we may be suffering, we can still have hope. He says, what we suffer now is nothing, it's nothing compared to the glory that God will reveal to us later. For all creation is eagerly waiting for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom, freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies that he's promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. Remember that verse, okay? We were given this hope when we were saved. And if we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the scripture goes on, but we'll stop right there. Because I want you to just get a sample, a taste of the kind of hope that Paul is talking about. And I hope you realize that that was a deep and rich hope. It's even described as an eager hope. But we live in a culture where there's a loss of hope. Whatever happened to hope? When you look around you, you'll pick up on this loss of hope among us as a people. We're not going to fully appreciate the kind of hope Paul is talking about until we diagnose, until we accept the fact that this loss is real. It's not always expressed as a loss of hope. Sometimes it's just expressed as a deep dissatisfaction or disappointment, a loss of hope in the nation, that there doesn't seem to be much of a bright future, that things aren't going to go well. There's a loss of hope in the future, that... One generation looks at the generation after them and says, I just don't think it's going to go very well. Or there's the idea that maybe we're not going to be great anymore. Look at the campaigns, look at the discussions, look at what's happening right now. And you have a lot of language about being great again or restoring or returning to the former glory. All of that speaks to the reality that there's some sense that we've lost our way. But is government the solution? There's a loss of hope in government. The rise of outsiders, of people who, who seem to be rescuers and, and saviors of the day. They stand outside the government. There's a real loss of hope that government's the problem and they can't fix it. And so there's not a lot of confidence there. 
it really breaks down to this. We start to lose hope in one another. We start to see other people as our enemy. That party's causing all the problem. This party is causing all the problem. Those people are the responsible for how things are. It's the young, it's the old, it's the outsider, it's the insider. We start to lose hope in one another. And that can infect the church. And even in the church, we can lose hope. It happens that we want to somehow make sure that we're constantly making things better. And and sometimes when we see our numbers changing and maybe trending downward, we see attendance numbers trend downward, we see contribution numbers trend downward, we wonder what's wrong. And even though we want to blame it on external circumstances, sometimes we may turn that inward. We may lose hope and lose confidence in one another. And what it can do is it can get us to the point that we've lost hope and we start to experience the opposite of hope. What is the opposite of hope, by the way? Think about that. Hopelessness. That's not a good opposite word. The opposite of hope is not just hopelessness. You have to create a word to say that. You zero out the hope. You've got less of it, and you turn it into a condition. Now, what do you have? There's something there. In fact, there may be things that push hope out. That as the opposite of hope, they might even be clouding and crowding hope out of our hearts and out of our culture, out of our church. The opposite of hope might be things like worry. If hope is the expectation that something good, that something important is going to happen in the future, then worry is the opposite because worry predicts that things are going to go very badly. Or worry is the preoccupation with our ability to manipulate and to control what is going to happen. The opposite of hope might be fear. If hope is expectant, if hope is always attached to something good, which it typically is, fear, by the way, fear can be something very real and very present, but fear can also be projected, and and the, the object of our fear can be something that is unknown, like the future. We might describe a good future as something we hope for. A bad future would be something we fear. And really, the opposite of hope is despair. Despair is a conviction. It is a conviction that things will go badly. Of the three, worry, fear, and despair, despair is the advanced condition. It's the one that you can describe. Somebody is working at despair. It can lead to cynicism. It can lead to negativity. And we see these things in our culture. We can see these things in ourselves. These are real situations that we all deal with. But as disciples of Jesus, when we recognize these things, and by the way, these things may be indicators of a loss of hope. As disciples of Jesus, we have to ask the question, whatever happened to our hope? Well, remember Romans 8, 24, 
and some of, you, some of your translations will say that you were in hope, you were saved. Well, now, let me be real clear, because some of those English translations can, can be rather unusual. It sounds like hope saves us. No, Jesus Christ saves us. That's clear in Scripture. We're saved by being baptized into His name, not into any sort of theology or any sort of church or any sort of doctrine. We're saved because of the relationship that we have in Jesus Christ. It's that hope that we have that attends to that. That, that, that means that, that with, with Jesus Christ, we're confident and we're trustful in him because of everything that he represents. As Rick Carson reminded us this morning, that there is the death, there is the burial, there's also the resurrection. And so because of that reality, we, we have hope. We've got, a new, we've got a new fact, we've got a new reality that we can hope in. I like the New Living Translation in 824 because it comes across with the sense that when you are saved, you're given this hope. Or because you've been given hope, you are saved. It's a little nicer way of translating a very simple phrase that just says, in hope you were saved. It shows the relationship between hope and salvation. And I like that word given. Because you at some point, maybe it's today, were given a word of good news. You were given something to hope in and you placed your trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. Or because you placed your trust and confidence in Jesus Christ, you now have something to hope in even though you may experience all sorts of reasons not to hope. Either way, it shows the connection. So you were given Hope. If you were given hope, then what a disciple of Jesus needs to ask when hope is lost is where did you put it? It's no different than, in some ways, it's no different than losing your keys or losing your glasses. We always say that to help people, don't we, when they lose something? I've lost my glasses. Well, where did you put them? Which is a ridiculous question because if I knew where I put them, they wouldn't be lost, now would they? You know, that's the whole reason why I call it lost. But sometimes that helps you think. Sometimes you stop and you think, where's the last place I saw it? And then you, oh, now, now it comes back to me. Where did you, if you've lost hope, when you have those moments when you feel like you've lost hope, where did you put it? Where did you place it? Did we put our hope in the powers and forces of this world? Did, did, you, did you put your hope in the things that cannot really deliver? I mean, stop and think about that. Did you put your hope in the leaders of this nation? Did you put your hope in the powers of this nation? Not necessarily the individual leaders, but maybe the institutions that they represent. Have you put your hope in me or someone like me? And then you're very disturbed when I disappoint you. Are, you. are you disappointed because you've put your hopes in others and they've let you down? Or they can't seem to do what you want them to do. Maybe you still admire them, maybe you still look up to them, but they're not doing what you want. Powers and forces are nothing more than groups and collections of individuals 
and what they represent. And here's the thing about those powers and those forces. Be it the government, the church, leadership, securities, uh, money, medication. Go on. The list, you just build up the list. Experts, family even. Whatever those collections of people are, not a single one of them can secure your eternity. Okay? That and that alone is done by Jesus Christ and what God did in him. None of the others have returned from the grave. And I warn you, I'm glad that you feel like you can trust me. I hope you feel like you can trust me. And I hope you feel like I'm your friend. And I hope you feel like I'm doing the best job I can. And I don't always succeed at that. But when you put your faith in me, when you put your salvation hope in me, I'm going to tell you not to do that. Because I haven't returned from the grave. I am not the Son of God. And if you place that confidence in me, not only do you need to be concerned, I need to be very concerned about you doing that. It's not a good plan. But we'll do that. Sometimes we'll do that. We'll place our confidence in others to the point that we, we want others to fix all of our problems and give us our hope back. Long ago, there's a, there's a, there's a piece of Scripture that should fit between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but it didn't quite make it into the Bible. And if you got your Bible from a Catholic printing house, it might be in there, and it's called The Wisdom of Solomon. Wisdom 514 is how it will usually be referred to. Yes, I'm bringing forth a scripture from an, an apocryphal text. See, that's why you're not supposed to place your confidence in me like that. I'm a heretic, okay? But I'm telling you, you can find wisdom, and it stands for itself. And I like this statement. It sounds very much like the Bible. sounds very much like the book of James. Anytime that we place our hope in things like what the next election turnout is going to be, or the stock market, or some new treatment, or, or some new relationship, or some old relationship, whenever we think that those things are going to rescue us, then it's an ungodly hope. Not necessarily because it's sinful, but because it has no sense of how God has authority or has anything to do with that hope. And wisdom doesn't say that such ungodly hopes are just downright horrible and sinful. It says that they don't last. So he says it's like thistledown carried by the wind, like the little dandelion uh, seeds that, you know, the poor little fragile thing, you blow on it and it flies away. Or it's like the light frost that you'll see in the morning and as soon as the sun comes up, it's gone. Or it's like the remembrance of a guest who stays but a day. And since this isn't scripture, I can really fuss with it and say it depends on who the guest was, okay? Um, But you get the idea. When we place our hope in things other than God, it's going to be fragile. It's going to be fleeting. And so when we have that experience of losing hope, maybe you put it in something you shouldn't have put it in. But when our hope is in Christ, when you put your hope and your trust in Christ, it overcomes worry, it overcomes fear, it overcomes 
overcomes despair. And even if those things superabound and just get larger and larger, when you put that hope in Jesus Christ, it's greater still. If we really trust in Christ, then the powers that cause worry and fear and despair cannot grip us as they once did. By the way, if you put your hope in those things that are ungodly or those things that are earthly, you need to be very careful because some of those things that ask for your hope and ask for your trust and ask for you to rely on them, they want to keep you worried. They have an agenda, some of them. Some of them want to keep you fearful. Some of them want to keep you in despair so that they can keep selling you their solutions. Some people, some critics, have accused the church and have accused Christianity and preachers, like me, of doing that. And it has been done throughout history. That there are those who always put before us the idea of a of, a, of an angry God that we're just holding him back before he comes out to get us. But we've got the solution. We know how to appease him. And if you'll take care of it Sunday after Sunday, we're all going to get through this. And that's no gospel at all, church. That's not a gospel. That's not biblical. That's not right. Jesus Christ never came to preach sermons that would scare people. But he told parables about the overwhelming love of his Father. But preacher, if you preach that all the time, then everybody will just go along and they'll think that there's, there's nothing that they have to change and they'll just do whatever they want. If they really understand what God's love is about, then they're going to change. Because it makes a difference. And when you understand the kind of hope that says that the things of this world are nothing to truly be afraid of, but instead we have something greater, that's going to change things. That's going to overcome worry and fear and despair. How can our people be doing things around the world and across the street if they don't have that kind of hope, that kind of idea that there are promises that God will fulfill? Now look at the teaching of Jesus. Look what he said. In Matthew 6, he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And he's not just talking about eternity and the hereafter, but he's talking about the here and now. He wraps up one section in the Sermon on the Mount and says, Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he'll give you everything you need. What's that going to do to worry? He will give you everything that you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. He has just focused our confidence, not in any other power on earth, but in the kingdom of God. Seek that first. In other words, put your trust and your confidence there. And even the worries of this world, even the fears and the despair that can come about in this world, they're overwhelmed by that hope in Christ and the kingdom of God. Well, what about the hereafter? We need to worry about that, don't we? I mean, the hereafter, you never know. We're all going to get up there, and there's going to be all kinds of surprises. God's going to be upset. He's going to be pulling that lever. People will be falling through trap doors to hell. This is going to be wretched. It's not the message of Scripture. The message of Scripture is to take it seriously, yes. 
but to know with that same sense of urgency and seriousness that when you place your confidence in God and you keep that confidence in God, you can be secure. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. This is Jesus again, John 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? The grace of God is not limited. The grace of God is not so limited that that there there are some who will be saved and there's some who won't. Sometimes there are doctrines that say that, well, you know, it's all this has all been this has all been worked out at the beginning of time and the saved are saved and the unsaved are unsaved. This is, this is as if God is not sovereign. As if we're all going to come into eternity and God's going to say to some of us, you know, I really wanted to save you, but my hands are tied. It's just policy. I can't do anything about it. Sorry. That's not God. That's not the gospel. Jesus is asking us to place our trust and confidence in him. That tells me that he has a lot of confidence in God, and he wants us to have a lot of confidence in himself. In Christ's teachings, you see what can be done with the worries of this world and the worries of eternity. And that ought to also handle fear and despair. Because the message is that worry, fear, and despair do not get the last word. They are not the final state of things. But we've got to place our trust and confidence in him. Because otherwise, we're going to be placing it in ourselves. We're going to place it in our own knowledge. We're going to place it in the knowledge of our minister. We're going to place it in the, in the confidence of our leaders or in the makeup of our leadership or in the way that we do worship on Sunday morning. And all these things are going to convince us that if we, if we can get all the pieces on the chessboard just right, then the path to victory will be there. And what we ought to be doing is trusting God to show us how to do things. What happens when you do that is suddenly you get new options. You begin to see, and by the way, some of this is right there in Romans 8. When you look at Romans 8, Romans 8, 5. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. And by the way, that doesn't just mean that, that, that some, someone who uh, is, is truly obviously sinful is controlled by the sinful nature. Sometimes those of us who who think that we know how to uh, do everything in the Christian way, in the church way, and we know how to operate within the church culture, we too can be affected by the sinful nature. And we might have uh, uh, hatred or anger. We might have contempt in our hearts. But we'll even translate that to a kind of a righteousness so that it's okay for me to think the worst about others. Watch out. That's the sinful nature. And the sinful nature, when it controls you, it, it, it will take you away from depending on God. Those who are controlled by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about the things that please the Spirit. Worry then is replaced by trust when we are in step with God's Spirit. And we overcome fear as well. Look at verse 15 in chapter 8. You did not receive a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Fear is replaced 
by the Spirit of God. When I was very young and I was baptized, I always thought that I had to have confidence in my own ability to secure my salvation. I remember going to some youth event, or it wasn't a church youth event, it was some school event, and one of these street preachers was there, and he was pointing at people and telling them that they were all sinners, they were all sinners. And I'm walking around, you know, the, this, uh, I'm, we were in a football stadium, and it was either a band or track or something like that. As we've established already, my memory is fading. But anyway, the, uh, I, I do remember this part. I was, I was trying to stay out of this guy's line of sight, and then he caught me pegs me. What about you? He points at me. Are you saved? Well, now the way I hear that question is, can I rescue myself? Well, I'd been baptized into Christ at that point, but I hear that as, well, I don't know. Am I doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing? So I gave my great statement of confidence and faith, and I said back to him boldly, Well, I really hope so. Don't know for sure. Oh, and you should have seen the people come to me. I want that kind of faith. Give me that wavering. But now, it would have been wrong if I had declared hope and confidence in my own ability to save myself. And that's what I was thinking. But if I declared my confidence in God and said, look, I wish I could go back to that moment. I would say, yeah, my father's got this one taken care of. So I'm not worried. But I am going to please him. When we stay in step with the spirit, we trust in the spirit. It actually casts out fear too. Fearful Christians hurt the witness of the gospel. Why Why does anybody want to come to Jesus and be frightened? Despair is replaced by a spirit of love. Have you read the last part of Romans 8? Look at verse 38. Boy, Paul really hits it here. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life. You've hit the two big categories right there. But he keeps going. Neither angels nor demons. Neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. It means that whatever is going on, God loves you. Now how we respond to that love is important. But God doesn't change. His love for us never changes. It's always there. This is where we can find our hope. But maybe you've lost it. And by the way, worry and fear and despair are just the indicators that you know you don't quite have it. You may not even... There is a situation much more severe than that. Hope can truly be lost. I mean lost. If you experience any of these symptoms, anger, hatred, unreasonable negativity, we call that cynicism sometimes, where everything is always bad, condemnation, if, 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 if these are frequent, then you may have truly lost your hope. 
That condemnation may be condemnation of others, or it may even be condemnation of self. And by the way, we all struggle with all of these things, but having that hope helps us to overcome these things. But watch out for these. And what's really problematic, and I'm speaking like the church doctor now, with these conditions is that they can become contagious. They can become very contagious. Well, if that's the case and you've totally lost it, what do you do? Well, I've got good news. First of all, we can never forget Romans 8, 1 and 2. There's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Almost too simple. Really? No condemnation? Shouldn't Paul qualify that a bit? There's probably not any condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. I mean, would we be more comfortable if he said it like that? Because you never know. Maybe he ought to say there might not be any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, there's probably a lot of condemnation, but this is your best option. Paul knows that we can have confidence and trust in God. So it's a logical thing to say there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. That means zero, none. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. He's talking about a situation where God is redeeming us. And it's an ongoing process for sure. But what if we keep experiencing those symptoms of sin and death? What if we keep experiencing worry and fear, or even worse, despair, or even worse, anger, hatred, cynicism, negativity? And what if we keep feeling that condemnation? I've lost my hope, preacher. What do I do now? Go back to the source. The good news is is that even if you've lost it totally, there's more. It never runs out. It's there. Look at how Paul ends up the letter, Romans 15, 13. His prayer is one that I would pray for us as well. I pray that God, the source of hope, go to the source. If hope has been lost, go to the source. There's no long line for replacing it. There's no policy on returns. You just go back to the source and you get that hope renewed again. And when you do, it'll fill you completely with joy. And peace. Why? Because you trust in Him. And then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. If anger, hatred, negativity, if condemnation, even worry, fear, and despair, if those things can be contagious, then hope that comes from the true source of hope is overflowing. It'll overflow. There won't be any room for the others. And when they do try to embed themselves, that hope, that joy and peace will just overflow. It'll surround it. It'll wash it out. As we finish up our service here, what we want to do is we want to celebrate the source of hope. We come together for a gospel moment, a moment where we recognize that God saves, and He is effective when He saves. Because of what He did in Jesus Christ... In the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation, not because of what you and I do or fail to do. There's no condemnation because God is effective in overcoming condemnation. 
God has the power, God has the will, and he has the ability to overcome sin. So as we stand and sing this song, we're going to celebrate that. How do you need to respond to God's love this morning? How do you need to respond so that you might be filled with with the source of hope? Let's stand, let's sing this song. We'll have shepherds here and in room 100. If anybody wants to respond for God's blessings this morning, just come up here and let us know. Let's sing this song together. My hope, our hope, is built on nothing less than Jesus.